is called the character of God. Wow, no one was here last evening. <laughs> so here we are exploring the character of God based on a central verse um, in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The verse says, The Lord, the Lord, in Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We're going to go through the whole verse, so don't get panicked by the last segment of there. Uh, so Pastor Ruben explored this verse last week. This verse is one of the, well, actually not, the most quoted verse by the biblical authors within the Bible. And this verse was uttered by God himself about God. So later prophets in the Bible used this verse to encourage people, to remind them about the character of Yahweh, and also to warn them to turn away from sins because they show them, hey, this is what, who Yahweh is, remember. So in this series, we are studying through these characters of God and seeing how they relate to us and how they communicate who God is and why, why does it matter to us today living in 2024. So last week, we opened up studying the first two characters of God, who is God is merciful and gracious and how we are the recipients of God's mercy and recipients of God's free grace and how we are called to extend this mercy and grace to others as well. And today, we are going to explore the next one in this list is slow to anger. This is a very interesting topic. Um, I have to hear uh, several studies on this, uh, spending so many hours to just to understand the concept of emotions and God's pathos, God's anger, to understand why... Why is there a word, anger? Because most people get uncomfortable with the word anger, right? Anger with God, oh, why, is it, why is God has to be angry? When you say love, grace, mercy, you feel better. When you say anger, wrath, if you feel negative one. So I want to point out in this verse, you can put the verse back. I want to point out a few things before we go into it. The first thing, the verse does not say God's primary character is anger. The verse says God's primary character is what? slow to anger, right? Not just anger, because so when we look at it, we just say, oh, oh, God is angry. It doesn't say that. It says God is slow to anger. So anger is, is, is the secondary response of something happening. It's a response of a certain behavior. God is not in him, himself angry at all the time compared to mercy and gracey. God is in, in himself merciful and grace. But anger is something that comes out based on a certain behavior and not a primary character itself. The primary character here is slow to anger. And the second thing I want to point out, which is very important, is that the God of the Bible, the God we worship in the Bible, is filled with emotions. His, his emotions of love, care, grief, pain, anger, etc., etc., because sometimes we, 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 we objectify God in a, in a sense that God is unchanging, that's true. God is sovereign, and it's true. But we sometimes picture God like a mountain, has no feelings, has no reaction to whatever. 
And, and you can't have a relationship with a mountain. You can't have a personal connection with the mountain. If you want to have a personal connection with something, it has to have emotions. It has to have feelings. It has to have responses of how you behave and how they respond and how they behave and how you respond. And you give and take via emotions. And God of the Bible, at least the way the authors in the Bible explain God, he's filled with emotions. So we need to come in terms to that, right? So God is loving, which is an emotion. God feels hurt when we hurt him. And God feels angry when he gets to that point. And we're going to find out what it means. So to understand that word anger in the Bible, we need to contextualize the narratives in the Bible to understand what that word means. Because if I go around this room and ask, what does anger mean to you? Or what does loyal love mean to you? Everyone will give different answers, right? Because I was asking someone, what do you think about anger? Oh, it's a good thing. And someone else saying, oh, it's the worst thing ever. Because we define anger, we define these words based on our cultural experiences, based on our positive or negative experiences, and we try to portray that meaning back in the Bible. And we say, well, that's what God is. So he's probably a bad God. And usually people take the text out of the verse and just say, oh, look at this. Bible says this about God. So he's probably like that without contextualizing the whole stories to understand the meaning of it. So what we are going to do today, I want to invite you to walk with me through the biblical narratives in the Bible, especially this verse in, in Exodus 34. Before this verse, there's three instances that Bible says God gets angry. And we're going to look at these narratives and to see how God gets angry why he gets angry, and then what is the meaning behind it? Is that just anger means just judgment and fire, the end of the world? Is that what it means, or what else it means? Yeah? Ready? Let's go? Yep. All right. So, the three big narratives. First one, Exodus 3. The first time Bible talks about it, it's not Genesis 3 in the fall. It's not... Um, What's that? The, the flood, the Noah's flood, people always think, oh, God got so mad. If you look at Noah's flood, God didn't get mad. He, he grieved. He felt sorry. He felt hurt by what was people was doing and let, let them take over what they were already doing. They were ruining the land. So God just, shh, go for it. The first time God expresses anger in the text, in the Torah, in the Exodus verse, uh, chapter 3. So the backstory was, um, quick backstory before I go into the verse. So Israelites was living as slaves in Egypt, right? So uh, they were living as slaves for all, almost 400 years, and they were oppressed. They were beaten. Uh, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, was oppressing them, and they even threw their babies in the water. So they were going through so much oppression. During this time, God appears to a man named Moses in the wilderness, and, and he sees the pain of his people, so God says to Moses, hey, Moses, I'm going to send you to the Pharaoh, and I'm going to bring my people out of there because they are suffering. They have, they have had enough. I'm going to bring them out. And here is a series of conversation that goes between God and Moses. So I'm going to invite, you can sit there, invite Reuben and Gabby to do God and Moses. So you guys, couple, decide who wants to be God, who wants to be Moses, and we're going to keep going. Me the microphone, so I'm not deciding. Okay, there you go. 
So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Who gave, uh, what is that in your hand? What? A staff. <laughs> <laughs> throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Pardon your servants, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? It is not I, the Lord. Now go. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. All right. So this is the conversation between God and Moses. And you tell me if God is quick to anger here. Was he quickly like, I'm so mad at this. Just, just remember, God is negotiating the infinite God who created the heavens and earth. Who's going to do so much miracles. Who's, who's going to split the Red Sea soon enough. He's negotiating with a human. He's long-suffering. He's extremely being patient. And, and, and every time God is saying, okay, I'm going to send you. Oh, why should I go? But I will be with you. Oh, then they're going to say, who sent you? Oh, well, this is my name. What if they don't believe me? Well, here's a sign that they will believe you. Oh, but I, I can't speak well. I, I struggle. Oh, who made, who made the mouth and ears? I will be with you. Oh, but please send someone else. And then the verse says, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Um, when we hear the word burn, again, for our culture, we go like, whoa, probably God is extremely angry. It, it, it's just a common way to express anger in ancient cultures, ancient uh, Hebrew. Actually, the word actually says God's nose burned. Uh, and and when, when they say long suffering, the Hebrew word is God has a long nose, which means he doesn't, he doesn't burn quick. It takes long for him to burn. That's the word they use uh, to express. So poetically, it says when they, when they heard burn, for us, we think it's too much. It's more like God just get angry. And if you think about it, God is long-suffering in this conversation. He's extremely patient with Moses because he wants to partner with Moses, just like in creation story, God wants to partner with Adam and Eve. He wants to partner with Moses here. God doesn't need Moses to deliver his people. He can deliver it anyway. But he wants to restore this partnership with humans. Together, God and humans bringing the restoration back in the world. And while I was preparing this, uh, this sermon, 
uh, I, I was thinking about it, and, and yesterday while in the evening, just it flipped the switch while I was listening to something, and, and it said, and, and this author was saying, if you look at the story of the Bible, we see the humans get more corrupt and corrupt and corrupt. People keep failing and failing and failing as we flip through the pages. But if you look at God, he keeps committing to the people more and more and more. Doesn't make any sense at all. You would expect God to just go back and back from the commitment to the people. It's like, I'm done with these people. But every time they fail, God gets committed to them more. Okay, I'm going to do more. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to bring more, more for you so I can bring restoration through you. And also, when, when, we, when we think about God's anger, we always think about judgment, you know. Uh, almost, um, we say like, okay, God is very angry when things go wrong and he's, pin he's punishing people left and right in the Old Testament. And then when he comes to Jesus, he's all love and the Old Testament is all, all like, psh, psh. that's not true at all. If you, if you look at the stories of judgment in the Bible, it is because God actually says, he uses his word a lot in Old Testament. He says, I will hide my face from them. And he will use the word sometimes is that they will drink the cup of wrath. It's basically what God is saying that if you want to, if you remember the story, keep going. Israelites will, will be captured by Babylon one day. And, and, and God said, if you want to make a treaty with Babylon, and if you don't want to trust me, you will suffer the consequences of your decisions. And, and God equates that to judgment. So when we hear the judgment, we always think like, oh, well, God is the one making them make a bad decisions. No. The kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, made bad decisions of partnering with Assyria, partnering with Babylon. Because of that, they went into exile. And there's a word that uh, the Old Testament prophets use. When you do these things, God will give you up to Babylon. God will give up to your own des desires. That's what you want. You want to go after the idols. You want to go after your own choice. There you go. Now reap the benefits. That's what God's judgment usually portrayed. It's not like God is bringing something that's never there. It's just giving up to your own choices. And Paul in the New Testament, he picks up the same theme in Romans 1 when he talks about giving up. Romans 1, verse 18 to 25 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made plain it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity of the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. God gave them up to their own desires, to their own choices, to their own wickedness. The act of giving up, the act of hiding his face, these things don't happen right away as well because God is slow to anger. God is long-suffering. God is patient. In the Moses story we just read, when the, law, when the Lord's anger burned, you would have expected judgment, right? You would have said, okay, God is angry now. It's going to be fire, lightning, earthquake. There is something crazy is going to happen. And we read in Exodus 4, verse 14 and 15, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. What? The Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Hey, what about your brother? See, this is, this is a clear example of how our anger works and God's anger works. When you read the second part, you don't see no anger. He has a, a, another plan already for Moses, but he was just angry because of what Moses couldn't trust God. He didn't give up on him, although he was angry. See, divine anger is not the same as our anger. It is not wasteful. It is not selfish. It always has a purpose. It always has a strategy. It always is restorative. It brings restoration for us. And church, if you think about it, in a lot of ways, God has not yet handed us over to our own choices, our own wickedness. And He's protecting us. He's sustaining us. And He's waiting on us, just like the story of Moses, to trust Him. He's waiting on us to get this trust back. And Paul writes this in Romans 2, right after that whole passage I read in Romans 1. He says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So this character of God, which is slow to anger, should lead you to repentance, not out of fear, but out of love for the Father who's eagerly waiting. He's patiently waiting here. Do you going to trust me one day? I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be patient. I'm just going to be long-suffering. I'm going to be slow to anger because he's waiting for you to come back home. And the psalmist writes this a beautiful poem here. He says, For his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Even when God gets angry with you, even when God gets this divine anger, which leads for restoration, it only lasts for a moment because he wants to bring you back in his favor. And in this, in this narrative that we just uh, read about Moses, God knows Moses' heart condition because God knows Moses hasn't experienced God's redemption yet. He hasn't seen the Red Sea open yet. He's meeting God for the first time. So God is even more patient. He, he wasn't saying anything. He's very slow to anger because he wants to partner with Moses. He wants to teach Moses to trust him. He wants to gain his trust through his covenant love and faithfulness. 
And that's the first story of God's getting angry. I, I, was, I, I wonder what's your picture of God's getting angry today. And we saw nothing like that in the first story. God was patient and slow to anger with Moses. And moving along, and God doesn't show this character, not just to Moses who is a Hebrew, Israelite, but he also shows this to, a, to an oppressive ruler in the story. If you go fast forward in the story, so Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was, at this time, he is an oppressive ruler. He is uh, most feared at the time. He's very terrible, like we, we talked about it. And, and Bible says God's anger was burning against Pharaoh. And what did God did to Pharaoh? Boom. He destroyed him. No. He didn't do that. Moses went and negotiated for God to Pharaoh. He asked Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. Ten times. He goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to Pharaoh because even people are not in the covenant people of God. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather he wants them to turn from their evil ways and live. God wants to give Pharaoh a chance to repent. And this is the second time God's anger was burning in Exodus. And it's against injustice, against oppression, against evil. But even in this story, God's anger was slow. He's not judging people that like that. And the Bible says even today, God is slow to anger. Even today, God is patient with everything you see around the world. I was talking to a friend the other day, and he was talking about why he can't believe there is a God. And his, his argument is, 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 is like, there is evil around the world. There is someone who kills someone, and there he's still alive. He's not getting judgment. If there is a God, why, why not fix it? Well, Bible says God is patient in these times. Because he don't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to accept the gift of salvation. God can come right now and fix everything. It'll be very quick. Peter says he's not slow to move. Some people say God is very slow. But, he, but he's waiting for you, for the people outside, for the people who never heard the gospel to hear his love. And if you are just hearing the gospel for the first time, you just in the church for the first time, I would like to invite you to hear what God is saying. Don't deny it outright like Pharaoh did. And we know what happened later in the story of Pharaoh because God gave him so many chances to repent, to relent from his judgment, but he didn't listen. So the story moves on to our third story. Then the Israelites left the land of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They saw God's redemption. They know God is so powerful now. Three days after, three days after crossing the Red Sea, they started grumbling. Grumbling means whining, complaining against Moses, complaining against God, saying, whoa, well, there's no water. How can I trust you? But you just came across a Red Sea in the middle of the water, you don't think God can give you water? 
Few days later, few months later, they grumbled for food. They complained they couldn't trust God for food. Later on, they couldn't trust God for water again. And you can see all episodes, God just being patient. He's not even getting angry at this storylines. People still don't trust God, even after the whole redemption, after calling them a covenant people, after calling them, you are my people, they are, God is bringing them out of Egypt, but they still don't trust God. And just as God promised to Moses, he brings them to the same mountain that he met Moses in Mount Sinai. And here, God is making a covenant with them. And we already see a pattern that I just told you. The more and more people complain and people grumble and people test God, God was patient with them. And God was still moving forward with his plan to commit with them. He's still moving forward to call them into his covenant with him. So at Mount Sinai, the people are here. God is here. So God is stating the terms of the covenant. Hey, this is, the covenant is going to be it's like a marriage ceremony, okay? So God is saying, I promise you to be with you until the end of your days. And this is what I expect you from. And, and people go like, of course we'll do. We do everything you ask. So there's like a seven different conversation going back and forth with God and the people. Every time they say, we do, we do, we do. And then God's saying, okay, come up to the mountain. Let's all come up. And then we are going to ratify this covenant. We're going to make it official, Let's say they signed the papers, okay? But they don't have papers that day, metaphorically. So God is inviting them to come up to the mountains. But the people don't go. People, people are scared because God is so powerful. He's so glorious. People say, Moses, you go up and we'll just wait here. Okay? God says, that's fine. Send Moses up. Okay? So Moses went up to the mountain. And he was there for 40 days to sign the contract, let's say, to sign the covenant. And the people are waiting at the bottom of the mountain. Guess what happened? It, this is like in the middle of a marriage ceremony, okay? The ceremony lasts for 40 days, by the way. So it's a very long ceremony. So Moses went up to sign the paper. And they were just waiting. They're supposed to wait until they finish. And this is what happens. I'm going to ask uh, Alia to read from the screen, please. When the, can you hear me? Yeah. when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what, he, what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that, that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. You see what happened? In the middle of a covenant ceremony, just days after saying, yes, we will be your people, we'll do whatever you want. 
will be the holy nation. We will represent you for the, the whole world. They started creating gods of their own making to satisfy their own sinful desires because they couldn't trust God. Even though we, they just met God, just said yes to everything, just came out of a powerful convention, conference, they just couldn't trust God. They broke the terms of the covenant already. And, and, and the, even fascinating in the story is that they didn't say things against Yahweh. They created an idol and called it Yahweh. They didn't say there's a new God. He, they just made an idol and named it as Yahweh. And they said, this is a God who's going to come out with us. This is like betrayal to an nth degree by your own loved one. It's like I, I, I find another girl and then I just say, her name is Sarah now. I won't do that, promise. <laughs> if you think about it, we, we tend to do similar things in our life. We like God. We like to come to church. We like to trust God when things are going good, of course. Yes, God, everything you say we do, we, we worship, we say we do in, in church. But as soon as things get delayed... As soon as things don't work out in your timings, as soon as things get harder, we want to create our own gods. Because we want to create gods that, that, that we can manage, that can, that can allow us to do what we want to do. I understand the true God guided me so far, but now I want to take control. This, this God is too hard to manage. He's too unpredictable. He's asking me to walk in faith. But I want security. I want control. I want a God that I can touch. I want to feel good about myself. I want to have a bank balance. In other words, I want to fulfill my desires more than I can trust God. So let me take control of my life in the way I want it. And then let me just call it as Yahweh. Let me just call this as God. And another thing to note is that they, they, they just didn't create an idol because they liked to, because every other culture around them had one. Everyone had an idol of how they want their God to be. And this also symbolizes in this culture we are living in, everyone has a God of their own. It can be money, security, fame, good looks, picture-perfect family, kids, we all have a God. Our culture says this is what gives you security. Whatever you want, whatever you feel, just go get it. Now my question comes to us is, are we thinking like Israelites, like I, I, I'm going to go do the same thing, or should we trust God who has led us so far, who has redeemed us so far, who has brought us so far out of Egypt? And this is the point in the story God has had enough of their disobedience. And he, God almost gave up, almost gave them up to their own desires. If, if God could have said, this is what God actually says in, the, in, a, in a different words, he said, if this is what you want, you want that golden calf to lead you into, into wars with, with the Nephilim who are like giants in Canaanites. If God said, just go, they will be, Completely gone. 
They want, they want to live. They want to live another day. If God said, I'm going to hide my face. But this is what he, he was about to do. So the verse in 33, the verse 9 and 10 said, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may just destroy them. And then Moses, I will make you a great nation. So God is telling Moses, I will make you a great nation. Let, let's restart the whole story from you. Just like I restarted from Abraham, and this whole group of people came out of Abraham, I'm going to bring everything from you. Just like Noah. And this is where I love the things get so beautiful, is that I didn't put all the verses here. Moses begins negotiating with God. This is another mind-blowing thing. God is coming to a negotiation table with the human again. Just like back in when it happened with Moses and God. Moses is doing the back the same thing. A human going back and forth with the infinite God. Presumably, he's, he's appeasing God not to destroy the people. He's, he's convincing God, like, God, please don't destroy them. Please forgive them. And God listens and he relents from his anger. And, th- and this is where I, I want to explain this more. See, God allows himself to come to the mediating table and listens to Moses' conversation and listens to his request. So this is what a true partnership looks like. So this is what a true relationship is, looks like. And this is so unique to Christianity because we have a relational God who comes to our level, who sits with us, and who talks to us. What do you want? Okay, why do you do that? Why do you think that way? How can I help you? Well, God can say, I know everything that you know. Don't even come to, like, have you ever wondered if God knows everything about you? Why did he ask you to pray? Why did you say, hey, well, if you ask, you will receive. If you knock, you will be open. Well, if he knows what's going to happen, why would you do that? No, because God wants relationship. God wants you to come and negotiate with him. God wants you to come like, God, please don't do it. And this is why God says to Isaiah, like, go and pray for the nation. Go and and ask for forgiveness in others' place as well. And that's what Moses is doing. He's, he's being the righteous mediator. He's to asking God to relent from his anger. And he's standing in midst of the people. And midst of God's burning anger. And Moses is even offering to give his own life in the this, in this story. That like God, if you want to kill them, just kill me first. Offer my, take my life first. But God did forgive them because God is long-suffering. God is slow to anger. After all these things, imagine this happening in the middle of your marriage ceremony. And then God still forgives them. Does this sound like a mean God of Old Testament? Actually, I can argue like the Old Testament God is actually more merciful than the New Testament portrayal. Because you know who speaks more about judgment and second coming and everything in the New Testament? Any clue? Jesus. It's the same God. Old Testament, New Testament. Don't pit each other against them. God did not destroy all the people. He displayed long-suffering. He forgives them because his anger had a purpose. It is restorative. And it starts to paint a picture 
of this mediator who stands between God and God's righteous anger. And here's where when Moses in this conversation of backing, going back and forth, and that's where Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see who you are. And God says, well, you can't see me because you can't handle my glory. So I will pass by. You will just see my back. And then he proclaims, well, he passes by. The verse that we are choosing for our sermon series. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty and visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now we see how God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and you just know the story of what just happened right before it. If I'm listening to the story of what's happening right here in Exodus, and if I'm being honest with, me, with myself, I will be like, well, I'm just like those people in the story, to be honest with you. I'm no better. I complain. I grumble. I don't think I trust God completely. I create my own idols every now and then because God doesn't give me answers, so I just run away to things that I can trust, I can handle, I can manage, I can count, I can look at number on Excel sheet. I don't completely trust God's covenant love. Although Moses was a righteous mediator, later in the story, he rebelled as well. He failed, and he died in the wilderness, and now he's out of the picture. And today we are living in 2024. We are living in the world just like them. And, and we are in a position of like, we are redeemed people of God, but we still struggle just like the Israelites to completely trust God. We anger him. We, 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 we don't fully partner with God. And we need a righteous mediator like Moses. But actually someone greater than Moses who can intercede for us just like Moses did. So if you look at the story of the Bible, centuries later, that's exactly where Jesus comes into the picture. Jesus, that's what Jesus did in his incarnation. He, Jesus, who is greater than Moses, who is the Son of God, who lived a perfect, righteous life, so he can be that perfect interceder, intercessor for us. And he didn't stop there. Because Moses, in the story, we saw Moses saying, God, take my life. But God didn't do it. God forgave them. And in this story here, for us to live, God has to take the life of his son. To forgive our sins, to intercede for us, Jesus, the perfect son of God, took the cup of wrath of God. In Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, can, can this cup go away from me? It's too big. No, but... He, he drank the cup of wrath, which we talked about it. The cup of wrath in the Old Testament, it always points to your, your effects and consequences of your sins. So that choices, your disobedience, your shortcomings, your sinful desires, our everyday disobedience, Jesus took it all on himself when he drank the cup of wrath. So you and me today, we are saved from God's wrath. All the stories we talk about God's anger, we are saved from it. We are saved from it. We are not here 
living in fear, oh wow, God is angry with me. He is not. Because Jesus took that cup of wrath on himself. And Bible says, in Christ, we have no condemnation. And I'm going to invite the worship team as I read this verse from Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The Bible says Jesus Christ is right now, as we speak, is at the right hand of the Father. As we speak, is currently interceding for you and me. For what you did yesterday, for what you did the day before, in the past week, Jesus is interceding for us. And let God's forbearance, let God's patience, let God's character of slow to anger lead us, Church of Riverside Lisbon, lead us to repentance. Lead us to get closer to God. Lead us to trust on Him more, more than yesterday. God knows you are struggling. That's why He hasn't interceded for you. That's why He's going to intercede for you every day. But I want to challenge you, myself as well. Can we trust God more? Or can we going to take this God's patience as a, as, as, as a license to just be whatever way we want because God is not going to do anything? I want to invite you all to stand with me as we close in prayer. Church, when our sins grow deep, His forbearance is deeper. His grace runs deeper. His love runs deeper. You cannot outrun God's grace because He's slow to anger. He's not going to bring the effects of your own choices back on your head. Because it went on Jesus' head. Jesus Christ took your sins away. Your effects away. Father, we come to you this evening, God. God, as we study about your character, God. God, although we, don't, we can't fully comprehend completely who you are. Your complex emotions, your complex way you you are, God. God, thank you for revealing to us from the scriptures how loving you are, how patient you are, how long-suffering you are. God, you suffer while we disobey and you wait you don't punish us for it. You wait for us to come back. God, I, I, if you're not patient, I would be lost. I would be destroyed. My hope is your patience. 
thank you for putting up with me. God, would you help us this evening to come back to you more, to trust you more, to not to make our own idols and, and call your name on them, but really trust you, not to fool ourselves. Help us to get serious about your love and what are the things you've been through the course of the history to show us the love to us through Jesus. Thank you for all that, Father. God, I also want to pray this character of yours be reflected in our lives as well. God, would you help us to see how much patience you are with us? Would you help us to show it to other people as well? Would you help us to be unselfish? Would you help us to be long-suffering? To be patient? To be slow to anger? To be slow to speak? God, change your hearts. Change your behavior. The only way you can change. God, lead us, Father. Lead us into repentance. We pray in Jesus' name.